1: Braves yes. have given you a championship. Listen and let's Left side, Swanson. To first. Yeah. Braves! The
0: world champions! Braves and baseball talk. Straight from the Diamond. Here's Grant McCauley.
2: And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I am Grant McCauley. These are the Kia Studios and this... It's another fine Sunday evening as we close out a week that was for the Atlanta Braves and across Major League Baseball. we got lots to talk about on this show. And all of a sudden, in the span of about 48 hours, I think most Braves fans might have actually climbed down from the ledge that they were on as a club. Struggled in Chicago, then struggled in Pittsburgh. Then all of a sudden, nothing like just taking it to the New York Mets and putting the boots to them in a couple of days to make you feel a little bit better about how things may be trending. And to, in fact, realize that these are the dog days of summer. There are going to be some downs that went with all of the ups that the Braves had leading up to this, and I do think that the talent assembled might just be good enough to keep doing some of that winning down the stretch and, of course, all the winning they want to do in October. That's all out there in front of them. There are a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then, but getting right in the rotation, seeing a little bit of that, certainly helpful over the weekend. And this Braves offense, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, these are spoilers for the show. We're going to talk a lot about what the Atlanta Braves offense is doing because somebody should be, a lot of people are. But as I am the person here, the denizen of baseball for ninety-two nine, The Game, I'm going to talk about it for a big chunk of the two hours we're going to spend together tonight as I prepare you for Sunday night baseball. Braves and Mets closing out their four-game series for the weekend. But Atlanta won't be done with New York. Instead, they'll jump on a plane, come on home, welcome the Yankees to Truist Park. We'll get into a little bit of the week to come. But uh, before we get started with everything, as always, I'd like to remind you where you can connect with the show and with me and for the show. Wherever you get your podcasts, that's where you can subscribe. Just search for From the Diamond. You can also find it on the Odyssey app. Fromthediamond.com has all the episodes of the show and all the links to everything, including social media. I am on Twitter slash X. Haven't really decided what I'm going to start calling it today. And I don't really know that a lot of people out there have made the switch, even though the company has made a switch. I think this is just one of those cases where, look, buddy, there's so much brand equity in this. We're going to keep calling it this. And I noticed that a lot of TV stations and uh, media types and media outlets and anybody that involves like video production whatsoever, they haven't changed the logos either. So this may go on for a while. And as long as it does, I may still say it's Twitter and I am still at Grant McCauley. You can find me there. You can find me on Instagram at Grant McCauley. The show is at from the diamond with an underscore on Twitter and at from the diamond, no underscore on Instagram. So you can check me out on social media. Appreciate that as always. But uh, if you have been following me on social media, then let me tell you about just the storm of tweets that I was in charge of over the weekend as the Braves-Bats broke out in a big-time way against the New York Mets to the tune of a season-high 21 runs on 22 hits in Game 1 of a doubleheader, which they swept after already shutting out the Mets in Game 1 of the series. So really inside of about 24 hours, if you were looking at disappointment from Pittsburgh and the fact that the Braves didn't take three out of four, or quite honestly, they had a chance to sweep that series and weren't able to do it. They weren't able to take the series against the Chicago Cubs over the weekend. So the road trip really felt like you would taken a couple of steps back. And in doing so, I think a lot of people were, injustifiably, looking at the rotation and at least scratching their heads and saying, what's wrong with these guys? Because it wasn't just one starting pitcher. And I'm not going to do the Sesame Street count thing. It wasn't just two starting pitchers. It was pretty much everybody that went out there was having a little bit of trouble. And that included the recently returned Max Freed. Now, not all bad starts are created equally. We've seen some that involve a whole bunch of walks or a whole bunch of home runs or just a whole lot of offense and hard-hit balls all over the place. That wasn't necessarily the thing for Max Fried. But he was struggling, too, right in the middle of everything. And I think as we looked after the trade deadline, what was going to get the Braves rotation back on track? Well, one of the big answers is, and, and will continue to be, the return of Max Fried. Another one could be the return of Kyle Wright. But in the interim, you've got to get Spencer Strider back on track. And I think we saw a little bit of that up in New York. You've got to get Charlie Morton on track, and I think that's still a work in progress. We'll hear a little bit from Charlie about what exactly is going on or not going on for him in some of these starts that he's trying to correct as he goes along, and there have been some struggles for Bryce Elder as well. So even with Max Friedback, there have been some questions, but let me tell you what's unquestioned about the 2023 Braves, and that is their ability to score runs. And I'm going to get into this uh, really deeply here later in the hour about exactly how many runs the Braves have been scoring and the fact that they have now become – With a month of August that, for a lot of clubs, might be about as good as it gets in 25 or 27, 28 games, however many you have in a calendar month, in 12 games, the Braves have piled up homers, they've piled up runs scored, and they have collectively, as an offense, just taken it to another level, one even beyond what they did in the month of June when they went 21-4. and Now, I know a lot of folks, as you look at a club that is scuffling and kind of playing 500 ball and doesn't look like the same team as right before the All-Star break, there is that obvious search for answers. Now, there's not panic, I think, if you're a longtime baseball person and you realize that the 162, it is kind of that marathon. And, I mean, I'm not a marathon runner, but I have run a little bit and happen to be engaged to a marathon runner. And I know that there's a point in that in which you continue to just push yourself through the walls that might start to come up and might start to creep up as you do the math in your head about where you are, what your pace is, and where you want to be, and are you, in fact, checking those boxes as you go along. And I don't think anybody could look at the second half so far for the Atlanta Braves and say, hey, we're where we want to be, and it looks the way we want it to look. We're at the pace we want it to be. But the big pace, the one that matters, is the Braves have the best record in the National League, the best record in Major League Baseball, and a sizable lead over the second-place Phillies, who, despite playing better, have not been able to outplay the Braves who have been at just over now a 500 clip since the All-Star break. So even though the Phillies went out did a little bit of trading, they added a starting pitcher who's been great for them, Michael Lorenzo, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later. That didn't turn the whole thing around for this team. And nothing has been decided as far as October is concerned. The Braves are going to try to figure out what their postseason rotation is going to look like. I think we know the likely candidates for that. But once you get past Max Freed and Spencer Strider, who exactly is going to be the back of that rotation? What's this bullpen going to look like? In the bullpen? These are some guys that have really picked up the slack uh, of late for some starting pitchers that have not been able to get to where they want to get in the game, have not been able to cover the innings they need to. But again, to go back to all of it, you can erase a lot of those ills when you have an offense the way that the Braves do, and an offense like the Braves have, and they've been able to do that. I've heard a lot of different discussions, had a lot of discussions on social media and in person. We like to have those occasionally about Matt Olson and what he has done since moving to the cleanup spot in the Atlanta order. We're going to hear from Matt Olson a little bit later in the show. In fact, when we get into this week in Braves baseball, we'll hear a lot from him on a couple of milestones that he reached over the past week, including a career high in home runs and becoming the major league home run leader, which is something that I think when you're talking about August and you've already set a career high in home runs and you're leading the major leagues, I mean, there's some special things that could be out in front of him, some milestones he could continue to chase. He's also leading major league baseball in runs batted in. And how is that happening? Well, let's look at the top of the order. Ronald Acuna Jr. is MVP season. Let's look at what Ozzie Albies is doing, a resurgent Austin Riley in the second half. Everything is starting to click, particularly one through four in this order. And then you can look at the guys who are in the five through eight spots. They kind of pick their opportunities to help this club out, no question. It's a very deep lineup. But at the bottom of the order, hitting ninth on the Braves, is Michael Harris, a man that could hit first, second, or third on probably, including the Braves, all 30 teams in baseball. But it just works there. And we'll talk a little bit more about the success of Michael Harris and how that feeds into the monster, the four-headed monster at the top of the Braves lineup that is out producing, outpowering about a third of Major League Baseball, which is a ridiculous thing to be saying as we sit here in the second week of August. But that's just where they are. But Matt Olsen has been the driving force of this Braves offense with his home run binge since moving into the cleanup spot. I went back and looked at the numbers for him and how many home runs that he had hit prior to moving to the cleanup spot, which was 18, I believe, over his first 68 games. A decent pace, certainly was going to put him in line for 30, 35 home runs, maybe push 40 by the time you get to the 162nd game of the year. Well, in the pace that he has set since the middle of June to now, so about two months in the middle of the Braves order, if you were to extrapolate that, that's our word of the day, over 162 games, Matt Olsen has been playing for the last two months at an 80 home run pace. That's how frequently he's leaving the yard. And nobody's you know, probably going to be doing that anytime soon. Nobody's ever done it in the history of baseball. And with respect to the era in which the 70 home run season showed up, it's been a hot minute since somebody's been able to hit that many home runs. But what Matt Olson is doing in the middle of this order has been extremely special. And to go with a lot of other conversations I was alluding to, it should certainly put him in the conversation for National League Most Valuable Player. Now, I will throw out the caveat. It would take an awful lot for me and I think for most voters, and I'm not one, to give the MVP to anybody other than Ronald Acuna Jr. And there are some great cases being made by our old friend Freddie Freeman out in Los Angeles, by Mookie Betts, who's already won an MVP award over in the American League. Uh, Those guys are playing great, and they're a big reason why the Dodgers have been able to weather the same kind of storms that the Braves have. If you look at these two teams, it's very interesting because it always seems to be for the Braves when it comes to October, all right, we got to deal with the Dodgers. The Braves and the Dodgers, how do they match up? And I think it's fair to look at them over the course of the regular season and see, hey, how do these two teams match up? Really good offenses, questions in the rotation, and a bullpen that I think has been able to help them cover for that. But it's really fascinating how similar these two teams are, and in particular, the starting rotation woes that both teams have had. But the offenses, driven by their stars, their past MVPs, Freddie Freeman, of course, has already won one of those. We know all about that from the 2020 season. So we'll see. We're Ron Lacuna Jr., we're Matt Olson, we're Freddie Freeman, and we're Mookie Betts happen to finish. I think that's your top four. In what order is going to be the question? I think it's number one, Ronald Acuna Jr. A nice sizable gap. And whoever's number two and three and four, they might be a little bit closer. And another guy that we're going to talk about in this Braves lineup, not to just keep on keeping on, but that's what the Braves offense does, right? It just keeps on keeping on, hitter after hitter, you know, bat after bat. How about Ozzy Albies? This guy, since (laughs) moving to the second spot of the order, not only has Matt Olson benefited from moving down and out of that second spot, but Ozzy, he just became the second player in baseball to reach the 90 RBI plateau. The five foot 170-pound second baseman of the Atlanta Braves, who's two home runs away from his career high, he's got 28 of those. Just incredible. And so we'll get into it a little bit later in the show. I know a lot of people looked at, and I think that it's apropos of where we are right now as the Braves and Mets are you know, battling it out in a weekend series up at City Field. So many people looked at what the Mets were trying to do and what they did over the course of the offseason and said, look, if the Braves aren't going to make moves and be serious about it, the Mets are going to overtake them because Steve Cohen's going to outspend Atlanta and they're just going to take that step forward or take a step beyond where Atlanta was. And one of the big stories all the way back to the offseason, all the way back to spring training, I remember asking Brian Snitker about it, how much is it going to mean for this team to have 100% healthy Ronald Lacuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies back in your lineup and his expression you heard it right here on the show was it will be huge and it in fact has been huge I don't think anybody could have imagined the kind of seasons that these two guys are putting up but they're doing it and they're just two of the nine guys in this lineup that have been very very impressive we got a lot to get to on this show we'll be talking about this Braves 11 game road trip their longest of the second half no more of these 11 gamers that you have to deal with moving forward and of course we're going to be taking a look around Major League Baseball to see some of the big stories from the week that was and Now, one of the craziest, strangest things I've ever seen, well, Levi Weaver of the Athletics is going to join me to try to break down the Kevin Brown saga in Baltimore. If you haven't heard about this one, well, you've been living under a rock. And secondly, we're going to get you all caught up because that's what we do here on From the Diamond. When we come back, we will delve into some of the big stories for this Braves club from the week that was, and we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: And welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening. Braves closing things out in New York, but not done with New York baseball teams. The Yankees are going to be rolling in as the week begins at Truist Park. A little homestand action for the Braves, who will host the Yankees and then the San Francisco Giants. So it should be a very interesting homecoming for the Braves. But we're not going to talk about the week to come just yet. We're going to talk about the week that was for this Braves club. And as I talked about in the open of the show, and as I'll continue to make this point throughout the show, the Braves' offense has been something else over the course of the entire season. But in particular, here in the second half and in the month of August, they have really just gone completely supernova. We knew it was going to be good, but this month has shown that there was a level beyond even what they were doing in that month of June, in which they went 21-5. and They rolled that right over into July, just kept on winning series all the way up to the All-Star break. And in doing so, I mean, the Braves have proceeded to pushed the second-place Philadelphia Phillies with a couple of wins on Saturday and a Philadelphia loss to 11 games back heading into Sunday. And the New York Mets, how about that club? That was supposed to be the rivalry rekindled. You know, this supposed to be Rocky II, I guess, if that's the order we're going in. I don't know how many more of these sequels they're going to make after this one, though. The Mets are now 23-and-a-half games out of first place. They are a half a game ahead of the Washington Nationals in the cellar of the NL East. And obviously, cellar is a key word Uh, Just the one with the S, though, because that's what the Mets were at the trade deadline. So this is a very different club than we saw the last couple of times these two teams met. But, you know, really what seemed to light the fuse, if you will, for the Braves. Maybe their month of June was already starting to smolder and some smoke was starting to appear. So we knew the fire was there. But the Pete Alonso throw it again moment is just one of the moments that seemed to galvanize the Braves in 2023. And sometimes it's just those little things that just go a long way especially when you're in the midst of a rivalry, and I'm sure that for the Braves, I don't know that they needed any extra motivation, but uh, they went ahead and ran with it, and they ran so far away, I don't think the Mets are going to be finding them anytime soon. It's just a little bit crazy, but we're not here to talk about the Mets. We'll talk about the Braves' offense, and let's talk about the most powerful bat in the midst of this Braves lineup, with all due respect to Ronald Acuna Jr., and Austin Riley, and Ozzie Albies, and anybody else that can hit some tape measure home runs, of which the Braves have hit quite a few this year. But Matt Olson is the guy right now who is really the driving force in what is, I think it's about a V12 at this point. I mean, we're so far beyond, you know, supercharged V8s uh, because you're talking about an MVP case at this point for Matt Olson. And I want to hear a little bit from Matt Olson, and then we'll talk about what that MVP race looks like and kind of my thoughts on what exactly it would take. Because people want to know if Matt Olson were to somehow find a way to surpass Ron Lacuna Jr., what is that level? What does he have to do? We might as well get into that. But uh, for Matt Olson, a couple of home run milestones, or one in particular, his career-high 40th home run he hit against the Pittsburgh Pirates in the finale of that four-game series. Then he added a couple more in Game 1 of the doubleheader. He's now the major league leader in home runs. But if you've heard from Matt Olsen and his laid-back style, among the many things that he's thinking about or focused on when it comes to what he's trying to do each and every plate appearance, it's not necessarily concentrate on milestones. Here's what Matt Olson had to say about home run number four.
3: Some of the names that are brought up. It's cool to be, uh, you know, mentioned in the same air. But I don't know. I really don't look at it like that. If I'm just going out and, and trying to play, and, and we're trying to win games, and you know that stuff kind of falls in place for me. So I try not to uh, get too bogged down in it, and, and just go do our thing.
2: And really, it's a couple of milestones, because congrats on the 40 homers, but also he got to 100 runs batted in, and he was able to do both of those things by game number 113. And I ran down a whole list of players that were able to do this, and I think there was 12 or maybe 13, so we'll call it a baker's dozen, uh, that have done 40 homers and 100 runs batted in in 113 games or fewer. And the names that are on that list, Aaron Judge obviously did it on his way to 62 homers a year ago, but we got Babe Ruth, Roger Maris, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. Luis Gonzalez was maybe the most random of all of them. And I believe Ryan Howard of the Phillies. But you get my drift. I mean, these are guys that had 50-plus homer seasons to their names. Albert Bell was another one in 95. People forget how good he was. But for Matt Olson, a couple of milestones, which are great. And I think that, like anything, and I think this is kind of what he said, and continuing to, to talk about that was, I'll reflect on this, and it's going to be pretty cool. But right now, the focus is most certainly on winning games. And the RBIs that have been piling up, 105 of those heading into Sunday's action against the New York Mets, most in baseball. Have him on pace for potentially a club record in the most since 1894 by anyone wearing a Braves uniform, and they weren't even the Braves back then. Here's what Matt Olson had to say about all the opportunities he's had to drive in runs. Regardless of where he's hitting in this order,
3: you look at middle line of guys, I think, you know, my job is to drive runs in, especially when, when guys are on base at the clip that they are in front of me. So that's yeah, a good, clean number, hopefully uh, some more. You know, like I said, a lot of that is, is by opportunity, and I'm hitting with dudes in scoring position a lot. So that's, that's the guys ahead of me. So it's a byproduct of it.
2: Yeah, when you got Ron Lacuna Jr. leading things off with his league leading run total. You got Ozzy Albies doing what he's doing, which has been a resurgent season and a resurgent run for him since moving to the two spot of the order. Austin Riley is hitting like the guy who was, to use that term again, supernova last summer. He just waited a month and let this whole thing start brewing into August as he's hitting home runs left, right, and center. And then you got Matt Olson. And if it's not enough and you needed somebody else to maybe, you know, get something started, your ninth place hitter has been leading Major League Baseball in hitting for about two months and a week. So, not a bad run. That, of course, is Michael Harris. Uh, and one of the big things for Matt Olson when we talked about the, maybe the need to move him out of that second spot was the fact that his strikeouts were piling up at an alarming rate. And I remember saying on this show you know, back in April, I'm like, listen, I'm going to tell you, Matt Olson's not going to strike out 280 times this year. But if you looked at the pace at that time, you, know, you strike out at a 30-plus percent clip, those would pile up pretty quick, and they were for him. But he has made some adjustments, and he talked about what exactly has changed for him that has led to the cut in strikeouts. And, of course, the more offense that he has been able to provide as a result of that.
3: You can't strike out with a 30% clip and and have success. I just feel like it's a product of hitting pitches earlier in the count. I feel like my two-strike approach has not changed at all. It's been the same, but I think I'm getting the less two-strike counts and hitting the pitches earlier in the count that I should be hitting. So when you're fouling those pitches off, put yourself in a hole, you're going to strike out more.
2: I chatted with Kevin Seitzer about, well, at least two months ago about what was kind of going on with Matt Olsen at that time because that was when he was right in the midst of coming into spring training and looking like a guy who wasn't going to make an out this year. I mean, that's how good he looked in spring training. And then really just hitting a wall in late April and through the month of May. And that's when all those strikeouts were piling up. And Kevin Seitzer said it's really simple. He's missing his pitches early in the counts. You watch Matt Olsen's plate appearances now. You watch these at-bats. He is not missing. He's not just fouling off pitches and then getting beat with two strikes. Instead, he is putting up great plate appearances, and he is doing some serious damage, and we're seeing it in the home run column, in the hit column. Uh, He's taking his walks as well, so it's not like you can just throw anything up there, and he's your old-fashioned slugger who's just going to be swinging for the downs every single time. I mean, this is a guy that does have an advanced approach at the plate. Now, as you look at the course of any Major League Baseball season, the highs and lows that are going to come with it, not everybody in the lineup is going to be hot, 1 through 162 and 1 through 9 in the order. Obviously, we saw what the rotation is dealing with these days. The bullpen has gone through it as well. Everybody's dealing with it. So Olsen talked a little bit about what it's like for this Braves club as they try to play their way through what we call the dog days of summer.
3: I mean, we're still playing really meaningful games. You know, we want to continue to kind of keep rising towards the end. You know, hopefully get on a roll here at, at the end and, and, you know, go and uh, hopefully, you know, be in the postseason and, and, you know, make a run. So, you know, I think it's hard when you're on a team that's very out of contention, but you know, luckily we're, we're in a spot where we're in the running and that uh, definitely brings a bunch of excitement to the yard every day.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of excitement that's been happening at the ball yard for the Atlanta Braves this summer and hopefully into the fall, as Matt Olson talked about. I mean, nobody is putting the champagne on ice just yet at all. There's a string of games that have to be played out uh, in order for Atlanta to get where it wants to get. I believe the magic number, and this is the first time I'm doing this, so please bear with me. It's always weird the first time, but the magic number to clinch the NL East is now 35. I usually like to look at it around 20 and below, but given where the race is, which is not over, but the Braves have been in a commanding place and pace, and when you do look at that and you start doing the math of what the Philadelphia Phillies, in particular, the second-place club in the East, would have to do, it's a daunting task. And by daunting, I mean darn near impossible. But, you know, weirder things have happened, and if you're superstitious or even a little stitious, you don't like to start counting those things as absolute wins, and you don't like to deal in absolutes as it is. But I was asked a little bit about Matt Olson's MVP case, and let me tell you, he's making a very good one. Many years, you might find Matt Olson among your MVP front runners. I don't mean like, yeah, he's somewhere in the top five. No, I mean like you could look at this guy's season and say, hey, I think he's going to win the MVP. But even on his team, which is a crazy thing, and I wrote a long article about this for the Marietta Daily Journal this week, which you can check out. I got a link on social media if you're looking for that. Ronald Acuna Jr. doing what he's doing, as Matt Olson alluded to in those comments, or just said flat out, my success is a byproduct of his success, and Ronald's success has been well noted. It's not just the power and the speed. It's all the other things he does, and we'll get into Ronald Acuna Jr. in just a few minutes. But with Ronald doing everything, basically, in every single offensive column at a level to which I don't know that we're going to be able to find a season in which a player has done the things he's done. I mean, Ronald is pushing many years. A 340 something batting average might win him the batting title. He's pushing 35 to 40 home runs as a leadoff hitter, which is ridiculous, and clubs would love to have that. He might knock in 100 runs at the leadoff spot. 40 doubles, pushing 150 runs scored, which is something that hasn't happened in about 20 years in Major League Baseball, so that's something to look out for. And oh, by the way, he might break the club's stolen base record on his way to leading all of Major League Baseball in steals. And if that wasn't enough, he's striking out about half as much as he used to. The new and improved Ronald Acuna Jr., this version we're seeing this year, is one of the best seasons that I think we may ever see. And if we're going to see another one, it might be done by Ronald Acuna Jr. That's the level that we're at here. And that's with respect to going back and looking at the numbers of the Mike Trouts of the world, Alex Rodriguez, and I'm talking, you know, the pre-steroid Alex Rodriguez, Barry Bonds, pre-steroids. I mean, with steroids, obviously those guys were a little bit different beasts. But I'm talking about the great all-around seasons where they filled up all the columns, power-speed combo. Just absolutely ridiculous numbers. That's what Ronald's doing. So I say all that to say, Matt Olsen's chances of winning the MVP are going to hinge on doing something truly historic. And breaking the Braves' franchise home run record is a pretty nice one. It's a pretty good stepping stone. Breaking the club's RBI record, which he could very much do and is on pace to do, and leading Major League Baseball in runs batted in and home runs, that would certainly do it. But I just think the overall greatness of Ronald Acuna Jr. across the board And the running start, no pun intended, that he has had on this MVP race, it's going to be hard for somebody to catch up with him. And that's the same thing for Freddie Freeman, who is having a ridiculously good season out in Los Angeles. And Mookie Betts, who I'd seen the numbers. I knew he was doing really well, having a great season. But, man, I looked at him earlier today, and Mookie Betts was a little bit better than even I thought he was here in 2023. And that just goes to say, I think that's your top four. But I think it's Ron Lacuna Jr. with a comfortable lead, and then everybody else kind of fighting for second place, and maybe Matt Olson will end up there. And you start looking down ballot because there's 10 spots on that MVP ballot, you might find Ozzy Albies. Uh, you might find Sean Murphy, who, by the way, is still over 900 with his OPS, having a career year. I mean, it's just ridiculous when you look at this Braves offense. Uh, in terms of that, I don't know if uh, Spencer Strider might get the stray MVP vote here or there. I mean, if he leads Major League Baseball in strikeouts or punches out 300 guys, that's a chance he could get an MVP vote or two in addition to whatever he does in the Cy Young, which I know a lot of folks are kind of curious about as well. But, you know, look, as we do talk about this Braves offense, it's not just Matt Olson. I mean, Austin Riley has been on an absolute tear. Ronald Acuna Jr.'s MVP caliber season. Ozzie Albies, also a run batted in machine here of late. And then at the bottom of the order, Michael Harris. I mean, a guy who could hit anywhere in the order for any other team in baseball and could hit anywhere in the order for the Atlanta Braves if they decide to go that way. But, man, I just don't want to mess with a good thing. And it's a really good thing when you've got a hitter like Harris hitting ahead, right ahead, of Ronald Acuna Jr. and Ozzy Albies, and then you get to Riley and Olson with all that speed right there. I mean, that's what makes this Braves lineup so deep and so great and so talented and so powerful that it's leading all of Major League Baseball in runs. So that's a little bit about what's going on and a little bit from the National League, excuse me, the Major League Baseball home run leader, Matt Olson, an RBI leader. Matt Olson that you heard from there. When we come back though, we're going to take a deeper dive into the paces and the stats and the accomplishments of the hitters I've been talking about. Not just Matt Olson, Ronald Acuna Jr. How about quite a few of these guys because they're all having great seasons. We'll do that next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: And welcome back to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you as always from the Kia studios here in Midtown as we wrap up the week that was for the Braves. And what a crazy week it was for the Braves offense. And I know we've already spent a pretty good amount of time talking about it, but I just don't think there's any way to not talk about it some more. Because as you look at the month of August for Atlanta, it has been pitching struggles and offensive prowess. And the offense has really been able to pick things up where it needs to and carry this club over the course of a stretch of games that, if we're being honest, could have been a lot worse if you didn't have an offense like this. I know there's the old popular axiom that pitching wins in the playoffs and you can't count on the offense to carry you there, and I don't know that that's necessarily 100% true, and I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, you're going to be facing tougher competition, so the pitching for most clubs is going to be at least good enough to have gotten them to October, so you're going to have that challenge. You're going to be facing pitching, that could be tougher than yours on a given night, or you could have somebody stand up and have a great performance, which we've seen before in the past. Putting that aside, that could also kind of harken back to the 1990s Braves. If we're going to put this to the test, that great pitching beats great hitting in the postseason every single time without fail, then I think we're going to need to be honest with ourselves and say that may not necessarily be true, because despite having three Hall of Fame pitchers and a lot of other supporting staff that made the Braves really what they were, built on pitching defense and timely hitting, there was no guarantee that your pitching is going to be able to carry you by itself. So what I'm saying is it has to be a blend. But when you have the kind of historic offense that the Braves have this year, I think they have a chance for something very special, and they have the firepower that very few of any other club in Major League Baseball can match. I know we're going to see the Dodgers before too long. We saw them a little bit earlier this season, but they look like a totally different team. But if you look at what the Braves are doing, very few other clubs in either league have been able to put up the sustained success in numbers that Atlanta has this season. The Braves just passed the Texas Rangers in batting average. I know OPS for a team has belonged to the Braves for quite some time, but other than Texas, even the clubs with the best records across baseball in the American League, the Baltimore Orioles, or whoever it may be at a given moment that might be making that push to be in the top of the power rankings. Nobody's doing offensively what the Braves have been doing. And nobody's been doing it as long as they've been doing it. Because if you think about how long the offense has been at this, we can look at the first of June, certainly as kind of a keystone for everything in the success of this club and the standings. And it's been happening at the plate for quite some time. So let's delve into some numbers and accomplishments and paces and milestones and, things that have been happening for different members of the Braves lineup. And as I've talked about last week, I mean, this is not just one guy doing it for a couple of weeks and then somebody else has to get hot. This is one through nine threats in this lineup. Now, are some guys having bigger seasons than others? Most certainly. Are some guys struggling now? Have some guys struggled earlier in the year? Absolutely. But taking everything into account and looking at this team as a whole, it's really hard to find out if you're an opposing pitcher And it's definitely hard to go two, three times through this lineup and have the kind of success you might the first time through. Then again, the Braves might just throw a whole bunch of first-inning runs at you and knock you out of the game. That is pretty much how opposing starting pitchers have to be feeling when they game plan for this Atlanta Braves club. Now, the first-inning runs have been spectacular. The Braves have scored 113 of those in 116 games. It's the most first-inning runs in baseball and has a chance to make a run at the 1950 Red Sox, who scored 160 runs in the first inning. This Braves club, they're close. Just a couple of more big frames might put them on pace to break that record, though that's not really one that you're going to write home about. Let's talk about Matt Olson because he's on pace for some records that you could definitely sink your teeth into. On Saturday, he hit two home runs against the New York Mets in Game 1 of the doubleheader. That gives Matt Olson a career-high 42 home runs. He'd already set the career high in Pittsburgh with homer number 40, but with 41 and 42... He moved past Shohei Otani for the major league lead in home runs. When the Braves got Matt Olsen from the Oakland Athletics, I know a lot of people expected him to hit a whole bunch of home runs for the Atlanta Braves, and 40 was definitely on the table. But now we're looking at a pace that could take him closer to 60 home runs. Coming into Sunday, Matt Olson was on pace for 59 home runs and 147 runs batted in. I'm sure you've already seen this on social media if you follow me on Twitter, slash X, whatever it is these days. I'm keeping up with all these paces. Matt Olsen's 59 home runs would shatter Andrew Jones' franchise record for most home runs in a single season by a Braves player. The 147 runs batted in, if he can keep up this absolutely insane pace, well, that would give him the club record in RBI, which was set way back in 1894 by Hugh Duffy when the club was playing in Boston, had not been called the Braves yet, and were still playing as the Boston Bean Eaters. That's how long ago it's been since a Braves player knocked in 140-plus runs batted in. I lowered the bar just a little bit, not because I don't think Matt Olson can get there, but just 130 RBI season, which would be far and away a career high for Matt Olsen and good enough to lead the league most years. But 130 RBI, that kind of season has only happened one time since the Braves moved to Atlanta. It was Gary Sheffield in 2003. So to put into perspective what all the runs batted in that Matt Olson is piling up means for the Braves and for the franchise, well, obviously it means a lot for the 2023 club, but when you look at the franchise's history, it's putting Matt Olson on some very select list. But that 130 RBI season is a bar that Matt Olson can reach. He's 25 away with 46 games to go. 130 runs batted in in a season has only been accomplished by six hitters in Braves franchise history, with Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews among them. So it would be some truly elite company for Matt Olson if he gets there. So with 105 RBI, he leads all of Major League Baseball in that category and in home runs. So two of the three Triple Crown categories belong to Matt Olson. The batting average is on the rise. He's not going to win the batting title, but he certainly has established himself as the premier run producer in the Braves order. And how about this with the 42 home runs? He's two homers away from matching Andres Galarraga for most ever by a Braves first baseman. So that's another very attainable milestone that Matt Olson could have under his belt And it could happen in the next 24, 48, 72 hours. The way he's hitting home runs, I would not put that past him at all. Now, the top of the Braves order clearly gives the RBI opportunities for Matt Olson. Ronald Acuna Jr. continues to score runs at a ridiculous pace. With another run scored in Game 2 of the doubleheader on Saturday, Ronald now has a Major League Best 106 runs through 116 games. That's a 148-run pace. Not only is Ronald doing all of that offensive stuff, but the stolen bases. We continue to talk about those, and I continue to run the 40-40 counter over on social media. At Grant McCauley is where you can find it. With 26 home runs and 54 stolen bases, that last total leading all of Major League Baseball, Acuna's in line for 37 homers and 76 stolen bases. If he does steal the 76, that would set a new franchise record breaking Otis Nixon's mark of 72, set way back in 1991. And it would be just another feather in Acuna's cap and another piece of his MVP case. And if you're thinking about those MVP credentials for Acuna, it goes beyond just the power and speed blend, the 40-40 club, the 30-70 club, whatever it may be by the time he gets to the end of the season. 200-plus hits, 40-plus doubles, 30-plus homers, maybe 100 runs batted in. Cutting his strikeouts in half and scoring darn near 150 runs with a 1,000 OPS. And by the way, he's pushed that batting average up to and above 340 over the course of this Met series as well. This is a guy who is truly doing everything. And by doing that, it's creating a lot of RBI opportunities, like we talked about with Matt Olson. But it's not just Matt. But wait, there's more. It's like the old infomercial. This Braves lineup is the perfect analogy of wait, there's more. But how about Braves second baseman Ozzie Albee since moving to the two spot in the order? That's when Matt Olson dropped down to clean up. We know about that success. But Ozzy has been an absolute run-producing machine hitting behind Ronald Acuna Jr., and that should be no surprise to anyone. His doubleheader performance on Saturday with two home runs and eight runs batted in pushes Ozzy up to 28 long balls on the year, just too shy of his career high. It also makes him just the second player in all of baseball to reach the 90 RBI plateau. Only Matt Olson has more runs batted in than Ozzy Albies this year. So as we talked about way back in spring training, what did the Braves do over the course of the offseason to get better than they were after winning 101 games in 2022? Unlike some other clubs that did have to break out the checkbook and sign some big free agents, and look, there's nothing wrong with that, The Braves had two key players returning, and if they returned to form, it was going to change the outlook of the lineup and perhaps the entire season, and we're seeing that play out, and I think we both know who those two players are. Two of the biggest things that Atlanta has going for it this year, that it did not have a year ago, is a 100% healthy Ron Lacuna Jr. putting up MVP numbers and a 100% healthy Ozzy Albies making his own case to be one of the most valuable players, at least on the Braves, if he doesn't start to get a few votes, down-ballot MVP votes, after the season's over. So I went digging into second baseman with the kind of power profile that Ozzy has, because the Braves have 46 games left. This guy's got 28 homers and 90 runs batted in. Not many second basemen across baseball finish the season with 28 home runs and 90 RBI. After knocking in eight runs, yes, that's... Correct. Eight runs on Saturday. Ozzy is on a 126 RBI pace. Now, the last time a second baseman knocked in 120 or more runs was Brett Boone back in 2001. Only three second basemen have driven in 120 or more runs since 1950. It's Boone, Jeff Kent, who did it three times, and Roberto Alomar. Only 10 second basemen in baseball history have ever knocked in 120 or more runs. And we're talking about a list that has Rogers Hornsby, Napoleon Lajoie, some guys who way back in the day set the bar for power hitting second baseman and, of course, are in the Hall of Fame. But Ozzy, with a 38 homer, 126 RBI pace is just one more piece of that top of the Braves order that just keeps on keeping on when it comes to producing runs. Now let's talk about Austin Riley because it's impossible to leave him out because the top four spots in the Braves order – I'm going to throw a stat at you that you might have heard last week, but I'm going to go ahead and reinforce it again this week. Austin Riley is a big contributor to it. He's batting 350 over the past month. That's 24 games. He has hit 12 home runs, knocked in 30 runs, and scored 23 more. He has truly found that next level that we saw him flirting with last summer when he was putting up a ridiculous month of July. This time, it's July on into August, and he just continues to produce out of the third spot in the order. Now, as I pointed out last week, the top four men in the Braves order, Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley, and Matt Olson, have now combined to hit more home runs than the Rockies, the Royals, the Pirates, the A's, the Tigers, the Marlins, the Nationals, and the Guardians. 124 home runs between the top four hitters in the Atlanta lineup. Acuna with 26, Albies 28, Riley 28, and Olson 42. So you've got... Four men at the top of the order who have a very real chance with one man already there and three more knocking on the door of 30 home run seasons. I'll have to go do some digging through baseball history and see what club has had four consecutive 30 homer hitters at the top of its order because I'm going to imagine it's a very, very short list, but that's exactly the kind of list we live for here on From the Diamond. Let's talk a little bit about the month of August because we know the Braves pitching has been kind of taking it on the chin. The rotation has started to get right over the course of the weekend, but it was a pretty rough week and a, honestly a pretty rough start to the second half for the Braves starting five. Now, Max Fried's finally back. That helps, but Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder, and Charlie Morton have all struggled at different times, and Atlanta's still trying to figure out that number five spot in advance of hopefully getting Kyle Wright back in rotation sometime soon. Over the weekend, those guys got right, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the starting rotation and what needs to happen there. But the Braves' offense, as I brought up earlier, it's a group that can carry a club. It can carry you for a week. It can carry you for a couple of weeks. It might even be able to carry you for a whole month. And if it happens in October, I think it may be one of the most memorable postseasons we ever see. But how about here in the month of August? Let's keep our focus on the here and now. The Braves have played 12 games this month. You may be surprised to realize that they're 8-4. And the Philadelphia Phillies are not exactly breathing down Atlanta's next 11 games out in the NL East coming into Sunday. The Braves' offense is a big reason why. When they went on their incredible run through June and finished 21 4, the Atlanta offense as a whole hit 306 with a 940 OPS, slugging nearly 600. The Braves hit 61 home runs and scored 175 runs in that month. Some incredible offensive heavy lifting. Atlanta still has over half of its August schedule to go, but has already scored 94 runs in 12 games, and that does include the 21 runs they scored against the Mets on Saturday, so that might skew things a bit, but already with 25 home runs, 91 runs knocked in, this offense continues to mash, batting 321 this month with a 962 OPS. That is how you make a run at becoming the best offensive club in all of baseball, And as you size up all of those team stats, the Braves lead with their 846 OPS for the season, their 275 team batting average, their 225 home runs. Obviously, 655 runs batted in is pretty good. And Atlanta has scored the most runs in all of Major League Baseball with 678 of those after absolutely shellacking the New York Mets in that doubleheader on Saturday. This, as I point out, and to close all of this up, is a very special lineup, a very special offense and a big reason for the Braves success this year. And I do believe that while they'd need to get the pitching settled and get the starting rotation back on track and have some guys make some adjustments and just be ready for the rigors of October from the pitching side. I think this is an offense that can line up with anybody and they can find ways to score against anybody. And the reason why I think that is because that's all they've done all season long. So That's a look inside the Braves' offense. Some of the great performances, the great milestones, the great paces, the different hitters, and the entire team is on as we roll into the midway portion of August, wrapping things up with the New York Mets and welcoming the New York Yankees into Truist Park. Should be a very fun week of baseball ahead for the Atlanta Braves. When we come back here on From the Diamond, though, we are going to switch our focus to what's going on across the entire world of baseball, and one of the craziest stories that we have seen all year long, it didn't even happen on the field. It involved an announcer being suspended by team ownership for pointing out that the club is winning more than it did in previous years against a top competitor. How does that happen? We'll get into the crazy story of Kevin Brown and much more as we continue right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond. Brought to you by Mark Spain Real Estate. Get a guaranteed offer from Mark Spain Real Estate. 855 299 on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to the Kia Studios as we continue, begin actually, our look around the big leagues. We're talking about some of the biggest stories from the week there was. And uh, as far as big stories go... We're going to lead off with one of the strangest ones that I've ever heard of. And it involves an announcer doing his job and getting sent home, nonetheless, for being positive about the club that he was calling. You may have heard this story. You may not have heard this story. But now we're going to get into it. And we're going to hear from folks all around the baseball world weighing in on this because this one, this touched a nerve. And if you've you know, ever met people who are in a certain fraternity or a certain uh, you know, profession, when somebody in that profession or fraternity or group gets picked on, well, they take care of their own. And I would say that uh, Major League Baseball broadcasters and probably sports broadcasters in general, well, they, uh, they came to the aid, at least uh, verbally as much as they possibly could, over the past week when Kevin Brown, the lead television play-by-play announcer for the Baltimore Orioles, was suspended by John Angelos, the main managing partner. And if you know anything about the Angelos family, and the Baltimore Orioles and the situation that has gone on there and it's gone awry in several different ways. Well, I'm going to get into this a little bit deeper with Levi Weaver of the athletic who will join me uh, once we get through this particular portion of it. But I wanted to lay the groundwork for this bizarre story and hear some of the reactions from across baseball, because I know I had quite the reaction, which was how can you let something like this happen? Well, let's hear what exactly it was that Kevin Brown said, because Uh, Just as a background of this, the Tampa Bay Rays, who have been a very good team in the American League East for quite some time, have been beaten up on the Baltimore Orioles, who until last year, and of course this year, with the best record in that division and in the American League, had been beaten up on the Baltimore Orioles quite a bit. So it was a big deal, obviously, when the Orioles were finally able to return the favor and try to win a series in Tampa Bay against the Rays. So Kevin Brown, as one does, comes on to his broadcast, tries to set the stage for that and talk about where exactly these two opponents have been in recent history. And these were the comments that got him suspended. Take a listen to this.
1: For the Orioles, Brandon Hyde has felt like this has been maybe the toughest ballpark to play in. But the Orioles have a chance to do something special today. They've already clinched at least a split in the series, winning two of the first three. And they could pick up a series win behind Tyler Wells today it's been a minute the orioles split a two gamer with the rays in june they had lost their last 15 series here at tropicana field you have to go back to when our now colleague brad brock picked up the win in the series finale june 25th 2017 the last time the orioles won a series here at st Pete. already got three and two of the chop this year after winning three of 18 the previous three years It is a stark difference, Ben, and it is not a bad race team. It's not like all of a sudden the race uh, became slouches in the American League East. They've led this division every day, but now two, and the Orioles once again are back
2: alone in first place. So that sounds to me like a pretty normal back and forth about two teams playing one another and the background of those two teams' recent history in the head-to-head matchup. Now let's throw on to the fact that, you know where Kevin Brown got those amazing facts and records from? the Baltimore Orioles media notes provided by the team. So this is, and in case you're curious about that in the media, if you're a baseball broadcaster, really any sport, media notes are provided for all the clubs, and you do your research and you decide, hey, what are interesting topics to talk about? And clearly, as teams want to show, hey, we're doing better or we're playing well or these are the things that are going well, well, the media relations staff for the Baltimore Orioles said, hey, you know what? We haven't been beating the Rays enough lately, so now we're beating them and we should, you know, draw attention to this because this means that you've gone from a club that has been kicked around to a club that's finally starting to push back in the American League East and the Orioles are certainly that. And let me just say, the Orioles are one of the best stories in Major League Baseball this year. So it's a real shame that we're talking about their broadcaster being suspended. But that, of course, is where we were this week. Now, those comments were made ahead of a July 23rd Orioles game against the Rays. Didn't hear anything critical there, but somehow, John Angelos of Orioles ownership decided that He was somehow saying that uh, all of those losses that have been going on for a number of years, I believe since 2017, well, that's because he was implying that the Orioles were cheap. Well, I think we all are competent enough to know what a rebuild looks like in any sport. And there is a purpose for a rebuild. And typically it is, well, it wasn't working. So we're going to remove the current players and coaching staff and whatever. And sometimes the general manager as well. And we're going to try to reinvent this thing. We're going to go young. We're going to draft young, talented players. We're going to hope to turn our fortunes around. And then when we do, we're going to spend money on the team. And we're going to make it even better. And those are the things that need to happen for a rebuild to be successful. And for the Orioles, let me just give them their credit. Their rebuild has been successful. They have done all of those things. But this Kevin Brown thing, it really struck a nerve. So it went for quite some time. I don't believe it was really noticed by the baseball world that he was not on television. Because sometimes... Guys take a little hiatus, a little break, a little vacation. You never know what it is. But all of a sudden, reports started to surface in multiple outlets that uh, actually the reason you haven't seen Kevin Brown is because he was suspended by John Angelos and Orioles leadership for comments deemed critical of the team. And then, of course, what do you do? You start digging to find those critical comments and you just heard them and they don't exist. It's not a thing. So putting that aside, uh, the suspension was never actually acknowledged by Orioles leadership. And they did say that they were going to welcome Kevin Brown back, and they did on Friday. But the baseball world had the opportunity to really put the pressure on. And let me just start out with a crowd at Camden Yards and a game on Tuesday night. And let me ask you if you think that this is a baseball crowd or a group of people that filed into the ECW arena in Philadelphia. Take a listen to this. (laughs) So I think you get the idea of where this thing was going and where it was going was everybody was in on what was happening and nobody was too happy about it. When it came to the outcry across major league baseball fans, obviously saw the problem with this. Well, so did a number of major league baseball broadcasters, not the least of which was Gary Cohen, who is the Mets play-by-play man for SNY up in New York. Take a listen to his comments about what exactly the Orioles did. And we'll just keep on going. Cause I've got a few of these and, wouldn't call him the greatest hits for the Baltimore Orioles front office. Here is uh, Gary Cohen.
1: During a recent game at Tropicana Field in St. Petersburg, Kevin, during his opening, talked about how the Orioles had had trouble winning in the past at Tropicana Field, but that they were doing better this year. That was really all he said. And for that, the Baltimore Orioles management decided to suspend Kevin Brown. Let me just say one thing to Baltimore Orioles management. You draped yourself in humiliation when you fired John Miller, and you're doing it again. And if you don't want Kevin Brown, there are 29 other teams who do. It's a horrendous decision by the Orioles. I don't know what they were thinking, but they've gotten exactly the reaction that they deserve. And it's just a shame because the Orioles are playing so well, and now they've diverted attention from that and now made themselves a laughingstock.
2: Now, that's really the point, and they did definitely draw themselves the most negative attention in what should be a very positive season all around, and again, this shouldn't take away from what they've accomplished on the field because that is what the players have done. That's what the team has done. What the ownership does obviously doesn't always run concurrent to the thoughts and beliefs and the actions that happen out on the field. Uh, Jason Benetti, who was recently doing some national work called the Braves game, Braves and Mets game, with John Smoltz last night, as a matter of fact, the second game of that doubleheader, he was a little bit quicker and had a, uh, I'll call it a quip, on exactly what it is might happen if you choose to talk about the Orioles losing games. Here he is. They were 6-7 and seven against the Orioles this year. So they lost seven times, but they did beat Baltimore six times, which I hope I don't get suspended by the Orioles for saying that. So you just open yourself up for just all of these barbs that are going to come at you from everywhere. Um, there are a couple more here, but I'm going to choose one that I think really could underscore This partnership that the New York Yankees have had between John Sterling and Susan Waldman is a well-known and long-running broadcast partnership. And John Sterling has been in the business, whether you love or hate those crazy home run calls, is irrelevant. He's been doing this for the better part of about 60 years. And when you show somebody who's been in the business that long something they've never seen before, you've certainly done something. Here is WFAN, John Sterling and Susan Waldman discussing their take on the Baltimore Orioles situation with pushing Kevin Brown out of the broadcast booth for those innocuous comments.
1: Anyway, Kevin Brown, in a Kevin in the game, was extolling the virtues of the new Orioles, talking about what had happened in the past. And the owner of the Orioles, a guy named John Angelos, decided that was negative, and he suspended him. It's amazing to me. How can you do your job if you can't tell the truth? But he didn't even say anything negative. Right. He was
4: extolling how good they are because look what they've done this year. And in the past, they didn't do it. So I don't understand it. I, when I saw the clip, I was waiting for him to say something horrible. And it was not. And it's just
1: never heard of that in <laughs> my life. We, if that guy was our boss, we'd get fired every day. I mean, <laughs> we comment that the Yankees have terrible batting averages, and they have terrible on-base percentage. And they can't oh, that's run. The truth. That's the truth. How could you? Anyway, every day that would be a problem for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, you got to be honest about the product, as it is and the way that the team is playing. Well, Kevin Brown did make his return to Orioles television. He did so on Friday night, but it was a very strange turn of events in that regard but i don't think it should be altogether surprising because clearly there were some conversations between john angelos and kevin brown and the results of those were never going to be made public and i don't think we could have expected to really get um, the curtain pulled back on all of that but uh, the statement that went out uh, by kevin brown via social media read quote unfortunately recent media reports have mischaracterized my relationship with my adopted hometown orioles Uh, The fact is I have a wonderful relationship with the organization and our ownership in front office has fully supported me since 2019 when I came aboard. I ask that everyone disregard the distracting noise of the past few days. I have worked closely with O's Senior Vice President Greg Bader for the past four years and with John Angelos, and I have a solid dialogue based on a mutual respect. We are all good here in Birdland. Um, I can promise you from my time in media relations that somebody helped him write that, and the somebody was obviously the club trying to at least do some CYA on the bad press that they got from this. And I hope, and I don't know this, and I'll probably never know this, and I say this with all possible due respect and zero sarcasm whatsoever, that Kevin Brown got something good out of this whole situation because it was shameful, it's ridiculous, and I don't really know how to characterize it. But I'm going to have Levi Weaver of The Athletic come on, and we're going to get into it a little bit more and see exactly how he would characterize all of this. He wrote a great piece in The Athletic, has a great – uh, newsletter you can sign up for called The Wind Up, and that's where I saw it, and I thought, you know what? We're going to delve into this a little bit more, so I hope everybody's going to enjoy that. But be that as it may, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies picked up Michael Lorenzen at the trade deadline, and he did something pretty special on Wednesday night. His first home start at Citizens Bank Park, he polished off a no-hitter.
1: The 3-2 pitch. Swung on, popped up, shallow center field. Rojas sprinting in, he's under it. He has space, makes the catch, and Michael Lorenzen has thrown the 14th no-hitter in Philadelphia Phillies history. He is being mobbed by his teammates as the Phillies shut out the Nationals
2: 7-0. So that was the final out of Lorenzen's no-hitter as called by Philadelphia Television, and congratulations to him. That's the first no-hitter at Citizens Bank Park since Roy Halliday in the postseason over a decade ago. So, a pretty special moment for Lorenzen. And of course, if you do something like that, your teammates are going to want to pat you on the back, maybe even raise a glass. And that's exactly what Rob Thompson and the Philadelphia team did after that game.
0: No hitter, unbelievable. Welcome to Philadelphia, buddy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, kid. Best job, Dave.
5: Appreciate it, guys. Um, JT, incredible. You've caught me twice. Second time, no no. Um, they're in missiles, but thankfully they're just a the center field. <laughs> thankfully they're all to the center field. So good defense. Um, but JT, like, that's incredible, man. Appreciate you. Love you, brother. Love you guys. Thank you for being so welcoming. It means a lot. Thank you, guys.
2: And what a cool moment for those guys, I'm sure. And no hitters. Pretty special. Anytime you're able to throw one of those, but how about your first home start after getting traded over to your brand new team that's trying to make a run toward the postseason? And you heard him giving a lot of props to his catcher, JT remuto that is always important. When you throw a no-hitter, your catcher probably helped you out a time or two as did the defense. So congrats to Lorenzen for that. As the Philadelphia Phillies' new acquisition made quite the first impression in a sports town that can be a little bit unforgiving at times. But uh, I think all's well as far as that first impression goes. Uh, When we come back, as I mentioned, we're going to get all back into that uh, Kevin Brown story because it dominated the headlines this past week. We're going to discuss what in the world went on in Baltimore with Levi Weaver of The Athletic. Get some insights on what in the world maybe John Angelos was thinking or not thinking inside the mind of a billionaire. It could get scary. It comes your way next. I'm From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 929 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as we wrap up another week that was for the Atlanta Braves and the rest of the world of baseball. And we continue our trip around the big leagues. And we're going to make a stop in Baltimore because honestly, I've never seen anything like this. I've never even heard of anything like this. The Kevin Brown situation, one of the strangest that you'll ever find when it comes to a team and a broadcaster. We know both sides are not always going to get along every once in a while. Just, hey, take it from a broadcaster himself. Not everybody out there is going to like what you have to say. But for Kevin Brown, innocuous comments about the Orioles' success in a head-to-head battle against the Tampa Bay Rays, well, that got him pulled off television by John Angelos and Orioles' ownership. We're going to dive into this situation, and I want to welcome Levi Brown of The Athletic into the show. You can follow him on Twitter at one of the best handles you'll find. At 32 EFIS is where you can follow him. He joins me right now on the WadeFord.com hotline. Levi, I appreciate you making some time to join the show. Baseball season gives us all kinds of stories, but I'm not sure that I've ever heard or seen anything quite like the one we're going to talk about
4: today, but I appreciate you making some time. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. This is certainly one of the more interesting... Is it is it one of the more interesting stories of the year? Maybe it's very specific interest, I guess. Uh, But yeah, Kevin Brown just being suspended for saying nice things about the Baltimore Orioles. Who would have ever imagined that that was going to happen?
2: What a weird way to take it. Most certainly, if you're the Orioles, and we're going to dive into that here. But for those of us who have followed this story, and then maybe for those just tuning into the show this week, kind of wondering, are we talking about Kevin Brown the player? No, we're talking about Kevin Brown the broadcaster for the Orioles. Their play-by-play man removed from those broadcasts in late July because of comments that were deemed critical of the team, according to the reports and what we've heard. We've also had a chance to hear the audio by now, and it was info from the team's game notes, of all things, pointing out that Baltimore's finally found a way to beat the Tampa Bay Rays with regularity. I fail to see how that's anything but a good thing, but apparently Brown uh, was taken off the air and definitely suspended for pointing this out. I'd ask how an ownership could be this thin-skinned, but the Angelos family has been known to get a little bent out of shape about things over the years, have they not?
4: Yeah, I mean, this is the latest in a long string of things. I think it's probably the most sensitive one. You know, we had an article in The Athletic this week about Andrew Baggerly talked to John Miller, who used to be an Orioles broadcaster. And at one point, the Angelos family was like, they just didn't renew his contract. By the way, now that we have the hindsight to look back on it, John Miller, one of the greatest broadcasters of all time. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is a legend in the industry, and apparently they wanted somebody – he was – honest, which I think fans deserve. Fans don't want to hear a broadcaster, you know, team loses 100 games. They don't want to hear a broadcaster come on there with a chipper voice and be like, hey, it's a great day for baseball, isn't it, folks? Wow, this team really tried. Look at the heart. Oh, look at the heart of this team. Boy, they sure are trying hard. Like, everybody's annoyed. Everybody, you know, so they said they wanted somebody that bleeds black and orange. Ironic then that John Miller would go to the Giants and become a legend with the black and orange (laughs) there, but I mean to be that out of touch right like if you want somebody that bleeds black and orange how do you think your fans that bleed black and orange feel about a team when they are not playing up to par like if if that's really what you want you're going to get a whole lot more criticism what you really are saying what you want is somebody who is willing to take directions from the organization be dispassionate pretend to love the team and just cash a paycheck and You know, if you really wanted somebody who was passionate about the team, you're going to get some criticism. That's just how this works. That's not what Kevin Brown did. He was not being critical at all. He was not saying, you know, this team is underperforming. The Orioles are very good this year. I honestly think they have as good a chance as anybody in the American League to make the World Series. He was saying this team compared to teams in the past, look at how much better they are. And as you mentioned, it was in the team notes. Yeah, The team notes, which, by the way, had a team logo on them like this came from the team. And he just said they've won three games in Tampa. That's as many as they won in the last two years combined. Somehow, John Angelos took that to mean that he had been cheap the last two years, which he had. Look at the payrolls. Right, The Orioles were at the bottom of the league in payrolls. He had been cheap. And that was part of the strategy. And frankly, all you have to do is come out and go, yeah, it was some real hard years, but it worked. Look, the rebuild was successful look at all this young talent we have we are set up to keep these guys in town for a long time we're going to be a good team for a long time i'm sorry for the bad years i know that was difficult it was difficult for me too i don't like watching this team lose either but it worked we got through it let's go enjoy these winning seasons that's all you have to say just be honest about it instead of being thin-skinned to the point that you suspend a broadcaster literally for for complimenting what's going on right now it's absurd
2: Yeah, it's one of the more absurd things that you could even just conjure up, let alone to see it play out that way. And it would involve, I think, for the Angelos ownership group saying, hey, you know, we recognize how difficult this was on the fans. It was difficult on us, as you mentioned, but we had a bigger goal in mind. And now we're recognizing and realizing some of those goals. And by the way, as somebody who did minor league play-by-play for a number of years— you know, you do have a certain responsibility because people make the choice to tune into you and you're the narrator for their team, for their summer. Right. If you can get into the fall, it's also great to be the narrator for that as well. But, you know, families listen to this, of course, especially at the minor league level, that's the only way they can keep track of their kids. So I feel kind of what you've laid out there in terms of the responsibility of broadcasters and writers and the people that cover the game. And I didn't see anything that Kevin Brown did or hear anything that he did that would have led me to believe that what Orioles' ownership decided to do was something that uh, was even in the realm of possibility. So we also saw countless broadcasters across baseball come to his defense. Fans were vocal at Camden Yards, chanting for his return. Obviously, the social media reaction was swift and loud. So I guess the question here is, and it's maybe an obvious one, is this a case of ego or miscalculation by ownership, not expecting some backlash?
4: Absolutely. But... Here's the thing, and I, I know that I'm going to sound like I'm organizing a uh, like an Occupy movement thing by saying this, but billionaires are not particularly known for being very in touch mm-hmm. with the reality of everyone else. Mm-hmm. They operate in a world where, and I here's the plot twist: I'm not even putting this on them as much as I'm putting it on the people around them. But when you have that type of money, people stop telling you no. If I, some just dude, come up and tell you, you know, hey, we need to do this impossible thing and, you know, it's clearly illogical and it's stupid, you're going to look at me like I've grown a third eye and be like, dude, no, like be realistic about this. We tell each other this all the time. There's constant pushback. It's more objective because we don't have anything to gain from it. Um, when the owner who holds all of the power in the situation comes up and goes, I don't want you to mention former Orioles players on the broadcast, which Uh by the way, is a thing that John Angelos has done, right? You're not supposed to mention them. Like how on earth are you supposed to give a proper, like, don't talk about Trey Mancini. He was a hero here for a long time, but don't talk about him now. Right. That's going to make us look cheap because we didn't keep our players. That's stupid. I mean, to put it just bluntly, that's so stupid. No doubt. To say that, you know, you can't give praise to people that used to work here. You don't mention Buck Showalter. You know, let's have a very accurate baseball broadcast and just leave out Buck Showalter, by the way. That's stupid. You or I, if we said it to each other, would look at each other askance and be like, dude, no, like, this is dumb. Why are we doing this? Somebody that's the owner that has all the power says that to an employee with the threat of or you'll be suspended for two weeks or fired. All of a sudden, it's like, yes, sir. Okay. All right. I guess I don't really have any choice in in the matter. This is just human nature. When you live life in a tiny little sterile bubble where nobody ever tells you no, you start to think that all your ideas are good ideas. Mm -hmm. And hey, they must be good ideas. Everybody's saying yes. No, dude, be aware of the power dynamic. You have the ability to fire them. People are not telling you no because they're afraid of you because you wield all the power in the situation. So find a way to check yourself and make sure that you're not doing extremely stupid, insane things. And it just seems to me that John Angelos has not done that. He has insulated himself against good advice, but nobody's telling him no. You need to have somebody tell you no. If you have enough money to push people around and push your weight around, um, it, it just completely detached from reality. So, yeah, there was always going to be pushback for doing something this stupid once it got out. And I'm not at all surprised that there was no foresight. That there would be pushback for this.
2: Yeah, no, it's not altogether that surprising when you consider all of the things you just put out there and the fact that he does have the money to make things kind of go his direction more times than not. Chat with Levi Weaver of The Athletic. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 929 The Game. Uh, as we parse through the Kevin Brown story, of course, it's not one where he disappeared for a long period of time, but it was certainly enough to get the attention of the baseball world. He returned to the broadcast booth this weekend. There was a statement that was made. I think that we all expected that there would be little to no real public acknowledgement of exactly what went on in the back room, be that as it may. This is a big weekend for him. I can't imagine walking through that door to do the thing that he loves as simply and straightforward as you possibly can. Is going to be the easiest thing in the world when you consider the backdrop and all of the controversy that's been swirling around him, John Angelos, the Orioles, and across the baseball world, there was an awful lot of talk about this. So I guess I'm wondering, how exactly does Kevin Brown just walk in, hang his hat up, punch his time card, and just go right on back to work?
4: Yeah, but announcers do this. You know, like, there have been times that a trade has broken in the middle. It, you know, it's, it's the trade deadline, a trade breaks, but it hasn't been announced by the team. And the team is like, you know, the reporters don't work for us, so they're going to break news before we get the ability to announce it. But don't you say a word about it while you're on the air. Not until it's approved by the team, not until we have the chance to tell, you know, the players who are being traded. There are players that are going to be designated for assignment. We don't want them to hear that from somebody other than us. We need to, you know, P's and Q's. And so broadcasters go forward and they broadcast a game like there's nothing going on. And then once it's official, once it's announced, all of a sudden they get the, the go ahead from Team PR and they're like, and we've got some breaking news here. Okay, that news broke two hours ago. But. We got some breaking news here there's a trade the rangers or the white Sox or the orioles have acquired you know x player from this other team broadcasters are pros i remember being shocked the first time i got a text from a broadcaster in the middle of a game i mean like how are you looking at the monitor hearing game notes in your ear and you're sending me a text like what kind of wizard are you um so he's a pro he's a very good broadcaster i don't expect he's going to address it at all on the air And it probably has been told in no uncertain terms, absolutely you better not. Now there's, you know, what would be funny to me is if he got on the air and in the first minute goes, John Angelos, this cheap son of a gun suspended me for two weeks. It's the dumbest thing. I'm so happy to be back. Glad to see you. He would be pulled off the air before the end of the first inning and somebody else would probably hire him. He'd be fine. Uh, That's not going to happen. It would be really extremely funny to me, but no, he's a pro. He's going to get on the air and broadcast like nothing ever happened. He's not going to address it. We're going to pretend that it didn't happen because that's going to be the edict that the team gives.
2: Well, as you would imagine, people were excited to see Kevin Brown back to work. The statement being what it is at face value. We can certainly understand that there were talks that went on between the Orioles brass and Kevin Brown in order for him to just simply resume his life, resume his career and all of those things. But what a strange ride it was certainly for at least a week once this story broke and I don't know if it was actually mischaracterized, as he claimed in that statement, which seemed to have a ghostwriter involved that might have had the Orioles' interest at heart, but we'll put that aside. Let me close with this. If What, if anything, does this do to the perception of the Orioles this season? I know it's not going to alter the on-field results of success that they're having, but it's an unfortunate distraction. It's bad press during a season in which the club has been one of the best stories in Major League Baseball.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the really unfortunate part of all this for for you know people that work for the orioles and they're just like this sucks we're the best team in the american league and now this is what people when people think about the orioles this is what they're thinking about um they are a very good team i I still believe that they are probably i don't know the pitching rotation might not be strong enough to get them through the playoffs but they have just as good a chance as anybody in the american league to make the world series this year that should be what we're talking about um, it's not. And that is what happens. That's the irony of it, right? You know, you get so thin skinned that you are worried about anyone saying anything that could possibly reflect badly on you. Then you make decisions like this. And then people say a lot of bad things about you. And rightly so. Um, what I thought was beautiful was watching the entire baseball world react to this. Mm-hmm. You know, broadcasters generally are not supposed to say anything about this, even for other teams. And to hear, you know, Jason Benetti of the White Sox and to hear the, the Yankees radio broadcast and the Rangers radio broadcast, and uh, I think it was Gary Cohen on the Mets broadcast, yeah. all come out and say in no uncertain terms, like, this is absurd. There is no way to justify this. To say something which shouldn't be controversial, but it kind of is. Um, man, I love to see that solidarity amongst the broadcasters around the league. And also, I just kind of had to chuckle, like, what did you expect? john angelos like what did you expect that everyone was going to say oh yes sir no if they don't work for you they don't have to fear your money so they're going to say exactly they're going to call like they see it um that is how these things go and if you're out of touch with reality you don't expect it but that's exactly how these things go
2: and that is the reality of the situation for kevin brown i'm sure a surreal couple of weeks but hopefully back to business and no more of this in his future wherever that takes him if it's beyond baltimore at some point I think he has certainly gotten some much-deserved adulation from across the world of baseball. So that may be one of the good things that comes out of all of this, in addition to being able to call baseball games again, because that's a pretty fun job. Levi Weaver of The Athletic, I appreciate all of your time. Let people know about the wind-up, the newsletter, and anything else you're working on these days that you'd like to get a chance to plug. We always want to give people a chance to do that.
4: Oh, no, just the wind-up. That's all I'm doing these days. Uh, I I've been digging into, like, life a little bit lately, so... That's for me. You guys just enjoy the newsletter, and you know I'm on Twitter and Instagram and all of those things are not hard to find.
2: Well, I really enjoyed that chat, even if the subject matter was one of the strangest things that we'll probably ever get into when it comes to baseball and broadcasting, and gosh, let's hope that it is. My thanks again to Levi Weaver for stopping by to join the show to talk about the Kevin Brown situation. When we come back, we will talk about the Braves situation as they wrap up an 11-game road trip. They'll come home and face the New York Yankees, so... There'll be no rest for the weary, no off day, no time to recover, and the Bronx Bombers will be coming to town. We'll talk a little bit about what's been going on with the Braves pitching staff, have they righted the ship, and, of course, we'll take a look ahead to the week to come, and we'll do all of that next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
2: This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios as we close out the weekend. Braves wrap up their business in New York. Then they come on home and they welcome the Yankees to Truist Park. We'll get into all of that a little bit later, but I felt like we might as well take a look at one of the big things that's been going on for this Braves club. And one of the stories that has nothing to do with offense, with scoring runs, has everything to do with run prevention. And for the starting rotation, it's been a little bit tough. Of late, But this weekend has been a very welcome uh, return to form, if you will, Uh, for a couple of Braves starters in particular. Well, Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton both had scoreless outings. They looked a little bit different, and they're going to sound a little bit different. We'll talk about both of them in a moment. And there was also what Alan Winans was able to do in Game 1 of the doubleheader. That means an awful lot. And then we'll see what the Braves are able to do this next turn through rotation. I I feel like there's always going to be highs and lows over the course of a baseball season. And for different groups at different times it's going to be a little bit tougher. And for the Braves rotation, they've been going through it for a little while. But what was going on in Chicago and in Pittsburgh, it kind of brought it from the point where you're, you know, wondering when they can get to full strength and wondering if they needed a starter before the deadline. At least somebody to help kind of even things out at the back end of the rotation. I'm not sure that there was a big upgrade available. And I'm certainly going to go out on a very short and sturdy limb and say you weren't getting Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer from the New York Mets. So be that as it may, the Braves chose to stay in-house with the guys who got them where they are with the best record in baseball, with Max Fried coming back, with the opportunity to welcome Kyle Wright back at some point in September, and then also having a handful of minor league arms that you felt like could give you the proper amount of depth. Well, Braves starting pitchers, they just really needed to get it together, and it started to happen up at City Field, and that's what they have done thus far, but it was, to go back to that point, getting a little bit worrisome just for... You know, the optics of it, and for just about everybody. The fact that you didn't have just one starter who had had a couple of bad starts. It wasn't just, hey, Bryce Alders kind of hit a little bit of a lull here midseason. What's going on with him? Well, no, you had Charlie Morton kind of dealing with it. You had Spencer Strider dealing with it. And sometimes it would happen right smack dab in the middle of a very good start for him. All of a sudden, four batters later, three or four runs are on the board, and you're kind of wondering what happened in the sixth inning. That was the case. And then his start in Pittsburgh, which he didn't get out of the third inning, was very un Spencer Strider-like. And when you couple that with the second start back from Max Freed, which didn't even go according to plan because the Braves, I felt like he didn't get hit all that hard, but play here or there wasn't made behind Freed, wasn't made behind Strider, and all of that kind of opened the door for the Pittsburgh Pirates to pile up some runs. But, you know, I am going to get to Charlie Morton and Spencer Strider in a moment and talk about some of the struggles they've been through, very different, and it's hard to say that Spencer Strider has just struggled for a long period of time because it seems like kind of a one start that's pretty good, one start kind of in the middle, maybe one start not so good. just hasn't been consistent, and consistency is important. But I do want to talk about what Alan Winans did for Atlanta on Saturday because I think that it's pretty safe to say what he was able to do in game one of that doubleheader may have earned him another look in the not-too-distant future. Seven scoreless innings in just his second major league start, and the Braves had not had a pitcher throw seven scoreless innings since the first game of the second half, and that was Charlie Morton against the White Sox when it looked like, all right, the Braves took their four days off and they're going to come right on back and they're going to keep on their role that they did in June and July. But as we saw after that, it's been about a 500 club for the most part, and the starting pitching was really having a lot of trouble. Then Alan Winans walks through the door and does what he did in game one of the double header. And then Spencer Strider followed it up with seven scoreless innings. That was also a sight for sore eyes, if you will, or at least doubling up on that. It's something the Braves very much needed to see. But let's hear from Alan Winans talking about the success of his return from Gwinnett, his second big league start. I know he'd made his debut against Milwaukee a few weeks ago. But this second time around, what exactly was working for him on the mound? Let's hear from Alan Winans. I think in Milwaukee, I got my ground balls. I got to be happy with that. That's
5: kind of my MO is try to keep the ball on the ground. And they found some holes, which is going to happen. That's kind of how it goes with me. But today, and them not finding a lot of holes today, changeup was a lot better. I felt the slider was pretty good again today, but um, fastball command wasn't very good there at the beginning. But as the game went on, I did feel like I got stronger because of the fastball command. And then, um, yeah, Sean called a hell of a game back there. I mean, it's pretty easy to uh, go to your job when the team puts up 21 for you.
2: Yeah, the 21 runs of support, that also helps. That'll play any day. But did you hear what he said there? Sean Murphy calling a great game for him. That's always going to be part of the deal. So important to to have that, uh, I guess, synergy, if you will. You only get that, I think, by... Having that trust and that relationship between a, a battery is extremely important. But Wynan's 8-3 and three for Triple A Gwinnett. 20 games, 15 of them starts at 279 ERA. 101 punchouts, 29 walks, and 113 innings. And now an ERA through a couple of starts in the big leagues, well under two. And we saw on Saturday, with our own eyes, exactly how good his arsenal can be. And it's off speed. The slider was working great, but he has an excellent changeup. But here's Alan Wynan's talking a little bit about his mindset. When he's out on the mound and how he's gotten the results that he has as a guy who did not necessarily come into the season with a whole lot of prospect buzz.
5: I think that uh, execution wins. You know, in this kind of game, when um, you're not throwing 100 miles an hour, you got to execute. And I think if you out execute guys, a lot of times you give yourself a chance to be successful. And uh, I said it to you guys last time, but people don't get lucky by accident. You know, you put yourself in good positions to get lucky. And today I feel like I did that.
2: Well, I would say he certainly did that. Again, seven scoreless innings for Alan Winans. And the big thing was he was a 17th round draft pick out of Campbell by the New York Mets was left unprotected in the minor league phase of the rule five draft. So the Braves paid just under 25 grand to take him out of the Mets system and put him into the Braves farm system. And now all of a sudden his first major league win comes at the expense of the club that just didn't have room on its triple a team for him. That is the fun of baseball. It is a very cyclical thing. And there's a lot of irony that runs through it as well. Uh, But congrats to Alan Winans on that first major league win. And a start that the Braves very much needed and, 21 runs. Again, that'll play. That'll help you pick up a win. But Alan Winans can't take anything away from what he was doing on Saturday. Now, Charlie Morton got this start in the opener of the series on Friday night. Five scoreless innings. Sounds great. Seven walks a career high. Not too many pitchers in baseball history have had a line where they shut out the opposition for five frames, but walked seven guys. And Charlie Morton's the only guy who's ever put on a Braves uniform and done that. Let's hear from Charlie talking about what exactly was going on with the lack of control, commands, and trying to work his way through that outing to at least give his club the innings that they need.
6: I don't know. You know, Travi hung with me. The guys put up a lot of runs even though they had to do a lot of standing around out there and so it was just one of those outings that was just like, trouble finding, you know, release point, especially my four seamer and my curveball. I mean my changeup and my cutter were there a little bit and you know two seamer okay, but my bread and butter just wasn't there. You know, I think I just got away with, you know, a lot. There were some quick outs on some pitches that weren't great, but you know, I don't know. I felt like I started to, to feel my delivery and my arm slot a little bit better towards the end. But by then, it's like it had already been a really sloppy outing.
2: It was definitely a sloppy outing. I think Charlie Morton or anybody else would point to the fact that seven walks is not what you want to do out there. But the Braves did score their runs, and he was able to get some key double plays and make some big pitches when he needs to. And I've talked about this quite a bit because Charlie had lost four consecutive starts coming into that one, and there always seemed to be an inning where it was a grind for him the whole night but he finally just ran into too much trouble. Too many walks, a timely hit, maybe a home run. It hasn't been so much the long ball this year, but a lot of free base runners, and that's been a big issue for him. Let's hear Charlie Morton talking a little bit about how he is trying to sort out his delivery and some of the challenges that comes with trying to make some kind of wholesale change to what you're doing and what you've done for a long time, right smack dab in the middle of the stretch drive in a baseball season.
6: My timing, I think, was off. My release was off. And I'm out there thinking, man. I like I'll throw a curveball, and it'll feel like it was the right release, and it just goes in the opposite batter's box, or I cast it. And I think the I don't know if I really have trouble. Like I don't feel like I quit out there. I don't feel like I ever do that. I just feel like there's times where I just don't really know where my release is, where my hand is. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard to make an adjustment, especially at this time of year. It's mid-August. There's a lot going on, and and it was just one of those nights you know every now and then i'll run into one of those nights and I've, unfortunately the past you know i made a start after the all-star break and since then it's just kind of been like hit or miss and uh trying to find my delivery my release trying to really get my stuff down and so i don't know i know that the curveball has kind of not been there i think i'm spinning it okay like it's coming out okay but it's just not doing the same things it usually does it, the depth isn't really there a lot of the time and that's one thing i'm working on i'm trying to get You know, fastball command back, but I think I've just hit a patch there where there's some things in my delivery I need to sort out and just kind of where I am in the season.
2: And hopefully he's going to be able to do that. I mean, he's got at least six, maybe eight starts left this season, depending on how the math breaks down. And, you know, there's an opportunity for the Braves to maybe work an extra starter in there, let him skip a turn through the rotation, and work on some of those things. But he's got to have the fastball command is where it all starts for any pitcher. You know, I don't care who you are, unless you're a knuckleballer, then I guess I'll give you a pass. But That curveball as well, being able to know the quadrant in which it's going and the area in which you're trying to get it, not having it fly across and have a miss. It's so non-competitive. I think there have been just a lot of non-competitive pitches from him, and that makes it easy for an opposing lineup to start laying off. Let's hear a little bit from Spencer Strider, who's also been trying to kind of work the problem a bit. I feel like, again, a lot of times, I mean, it has been homer prone, but I felt like he kind of solved that issue maybe. But he still runs into some beginnings, and sometimes some walks are a part of that. Now, seven scoreless innings that happened on Saturday in game two of the doubleheader. Definitely a great course correction for Spencer Strider, but he had some interesting comments after he was chased in the third inning, allowing six runs to the Pittsburgh Pirates in one of the worst starts of his career, and just how difficult it is to kind of try to problem solve when you're actually out there on the mound.
5: It's hard to do. A lot of that's um, difficult to really perceive in the moment, I think. you know, In hindsight, it's easy to sort of say what went wrong like I said, they had a good approach. They were competitive to the fastball. They were competitive when they were behind in the count. When I made good pitches, they were spoiling them or or putting them in play. And and then I stopped making good pitches. So, you know, maybe I needed to be more aggressive, needed to uh, go right at them, you know, but um, it's again, it's easy to say in hindsight.
2: Everything is easy to say in hindsight. I think that's pretty simple in baseball and in life. And for Spencer Strider, I mean, there are a lot of different things that a starting pitcher, no matter how good you are, and no matter how great your stuff is, and no matter how many strikeups you're piling up, where you're just going to run into that bad outing. I, I mentioned there's a handful of clunkers for every pitcher waiting out there. It's going to happen at some point. But what exactly can he do to learn from this Pittsburgh start? Let's hear what Spencer Strider took out of what was a difficult outing that he turned into a pretty good one next time out.
5: You, know, you got to learn from it, and if you uh, try to justify it by saying it's one of those games, then I think you grab yourself of the opportunity to do that. You know, ideally. I don't want to have any of these games, you know. So in order to, for that to be a reality, you got to learn from it and, and wear the responsibility. And, um, you know, I look back and I think I can say that it happened as a result of me not executing or not doing what I, I need to do to be successful. So, unfortunately, I think it is inevitable to have bad games. But, you know, this was a level of bad that, that can't happen.
2: I'll tell you this about Spencer Strider, and I'll tell you this about the next guy you're going to hear from, which is Bryce Elder. There's a good level of accountability there that it's not just, okay, well, you know, it didn't go the way I wanted to, and I'm just going to, throw it out and just never think about it again. There are lessons to be had in there. Now, while you do have to have a short memory in order to have success in this game, you still have to be able to learn the lessons. And I think for Spencer Strider, he always does a nice job of going back, not to the drawing board to figure out how to pitch again, but what things were not working and what adjustments can be made that next time. Because as he pointed out, it's not as simple as getting in up to your neck in a sticky situation and then figuring out how you're going to get out of it. And a lot of times, I'm sure that's going to feel a little bit more like quicksand. Every time you move... You sink think a little bit deeper and things aren't quite working the way you want it to. And I'm sure Bryce Elder has felt like that a little bit over his past half a dozen starts. He's had two good ones that were back-to-back against Milwaukee, but three starts in which he's allowed seven or more runs. And his most recent start against Pittsburgh, where he was charged with five runs, despite the fact that I felt like he was trending in the right direction, but left a couple of runners on in the sixth inning. They came around to score. They were on his ledger as well. But here's Bryce Elder talking about his recent struggles.
5: I think um, throwing it all right is just... I'm not getting the job done right now. I'm not finishing the outing, so um, I think there are spurts of good, but not executing enough pitches when I need to. So, I mean, um, i got to keep rolling and, and get it done. Right now I'm not.
2: You can hear some similarities between Bryce Elder and Spencer Strider, and that kind of lets you know what the Braves pitching staff overall mantra is, and, and Charlie Morton as well. You've got to be able to execute. And the, the importance of that execution and the belief and the conviction that you have in the sequencing and the pitches that you're calling and the pitches that you're throwing – All of that has to be there, and sometimes some of that gets interrupted and you have starts and stretches like we have seen lately. Uh, One good thing for Bryce Elder, I think, though, is uh, in addition to the accountability I mentioned for both he and Strider and I think Charlie Morton may be the most accountable person I've ever heard in my life in any walk of life, for that matter, but um, the belief that the success that you've had before, you're going to find your way back to that. And for Bryce Elder, I think he's really kind of recognized, and especially in this last start, that maybe – He's not that far off of where he wants to be. Perhaps he's just a pitch away.
5: If you look through the starts, I think it's good, then kind of sloppy, and then good, then kind of sloppy. And when it does get sloppy, it just kind of compounds. you know. And There's that one pitch that I've executed I think I get out of it. So I think just a couple more pitches executed, I think we'd be having a totally different conversation It's part of it in the long season.
2: It definitely is. And hopefully for Bryce Elder, he'll continue to make some tweaks and adjustments and enjoy some of the success that he had in the first half. And it doesn't have to be, going out there and throwing six or seven scoreless innings, so the Braves will certainly take it. Some quality starts out of this rotation with this offense, to go back to that whole part of our conversation here on this Sunday night, this offense is going to give you a chance to win most, if not just about every night. And when you've got that and you're a starting pitcher, I think that can give you some confidence, and you just want to go out there and do your part and take care of your piece of business, and that's getting the outs that you need. One other note for the Braves pitching staff, I know we've been uh, kind of monitoring some of the returns that could be happening soon. Dylan Lee is out on his rehab assignment with Triple A Gwinnett. He's tossed three scoreless performances, and I think he's going to stay down there for at least a little while longer. I always felt like four or five outings at the very least would be what the Braves would want from him, including back-to-back appearances. That's kind of the end-of-spring training test for a reliever, making sure that he can go on consecutive days. It'll also help him out a little bit on that roster crunch that they've got on the 40-man and on the active rosters. They try to kind of navigate through and figure out how it is to approach this stretch drive through August and into September. The week ahead for the Braves, the New York Yankees will roll into town to Truist Park and off day on Thursday. And then, hey, it's alumni weekend, and the San Francisco Giants will be in town this coming weekend. So a lot of fun ahead for the Braves with a couple of tough teams. And we'll see exactly how they're able to fare, and if they have indeed turned things around with a get-right series against the New York Mets. That'll wrap things up on this week's show. My thanks, as always, for you making some time to join me on this Sunday night. Thanks to Dom for taking care of all the great things on the other side of the glass. And my thanks to Levi weaver for joining me to talk about the kevin brown fiasco you can check out his work on the athletic you can check out from the diamond wherever you get your podcast you can also find it right here on 92.9 the game on sunday nights and until next sunday i'm grant mccauley so long everyone